Well, welcome everyone. Good to see you guys. Hardy Saints coming out in the freezing rain. Uh, Pastor Ray is in Peru, probably a little nicer there. Um, it, it's we're gonna just open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 11 here, and we're gonna actually jump around at the beginning here quick, but. Um, Peru is kind of near and dear to my heart. We went there several years ago with a team, and uh, it was just such an awesome trip. And the saints there are like, you know, in this little Calvary Chapel in the middle of the city. It's just so much like here, except a totally different culture, you know, uh, <clears throat> in the sense that it's like a family, you know. So you come to get, and they eat a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> they have meals after every service. So again, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> um, but I actually went twice. I went one with the, once with the team, and then the Lord put it on my heart to do this contest for the church to do this painting thing, and uh, I won the contest. So they had well, and then I came and painted these murals at the church. So uh, it was kind of a weird thing how the Lord worked it out because my wife was like nine months pregnant, and uh, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> With Seth, I didn't want to leave when the baby was born, obviously, but the Lord worked it all out, and right when I got back, pretty much, the baby was born. So it was amazing how the Lord worked that second trip out. But uh, raised there now with Pastor Bill, and just keep him in prayer, for, uh, especially for adjusting to the travel. It's, it's difficult for him with the sleep. He doesn't sleep well when he travels, so please keep him in prayer, and the Lord would use him, too. It's, sometimes it's hard to adjust to uh speaking through a translator when you're used to uh you basically have to cut your message in half and simplify right so uh, just keep him in your prayers and that god would bless their time they're doing a lot of good teaching there while they're there to try to encourage the saints encourage the works there uh, so this morning though we're going to look at some um just to kind of go along with revelation that we're looking at with ray um several months ago i taught in the book of daniel to try to give uh, Daniel chapter 9 to try to give a picture of the timing of, of Revelation as it relates to the Old Testament and the, the 70th week of Daniel and the mid the midway through how that relates to the Antichrist you know taking away the worship in the temple and setting himself up to be God and that sort of thing so I taught on that and it really set I think it sets the stage in our minds of how to interpret the timing of Revelation Today we're going to look at something a little different, but uh, um, it'll come out as we go through it, and uh, just try to try to give us a picture of some of the reasons why we consider Israel so important in the Book of Revelation. So, in Romans chapter 11, we're going to read some verses, and then we're going to jump over to Ezekiel 37 and 38. <clears throat> so, in Romans chapter 11, let's look at verse 25. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers will grab it for you and bring it over. Uh, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Very important verse there. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Um, so some key verses there um, that God wants to still save Israel and the literal nation of Israel that God still wants to do a work, even as Paul interprets that verses mentioned there um, for out of, you know, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness. Um, and then he goes on and says, because of the fathers. So now let's jump over to Ezekiel chapter 38. This is going to become kind of our example text to looking at why all of the promises concerning Israel in the Old Testament need to be literally fulfilled, which is why we've been looking at, in looking at Revelation, we zero so much in on Israel and the nation there. And it might seem, you know, it might seem obvious to you guys who may have been taught this stuff, 
but it's actually a pretty big area of controversy in Christianity at large. And uh, in terms of how do you interpret Revelation, how do you interpret all these things in the Old Testament, uh, these things become a contra controversy. And I think in interpreting it the white way, right way, uh, you know, in a literal way, we're also able to draw some, some other applications out of it. We're also able to see God's faithfulness to his word and that he, he's going to be faithful to us, too, in our own lives. So over here in Ezekiel chapter 37, I'm going to cover a couple verses here, um, just as, as our beginning reading here, here, and then we'll pray. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out of, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down, verse 1 here, in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, O Lord, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And then let's jump down to verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And here's, some of the, here's how we interpret this, the key part here. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And then let's jump down to uh, verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be a king over them, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. And then verse 24, David, my servant, shall king, be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And then in, verse, or in chapter 38, now the word of the Lord came and said, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And prophesy against them. And then down in verse 8, after many days you will be visited. In the latter days you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, and they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a, a cloud, and you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you declare these things beforehand, Lord, uh, and it reveals that you truly are God and there is no one like you. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the prophetic word of scriptures that shows us the things that were to happen beforehand to give us hope and Lord, to know our future, that you have a plan. And uh, Lord, in your faithfulness to Israel, uh, you are even faithful to our lives individually, and we thank you for that. We thank you for, for uh, how you've been faithful thus far in our lives, and we pray you continue, Lord, the work you've begun in us. And, uh, Lord, we want to yield to it. We want to surrender to your work. We pray you continue to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, you put your Holy Spirit in us. You give us that new heart, the fleshly heart, not a heart of stone, as Ezekiel mentioned over in chapter 36. And, Lord, a heart that is soft towards you and surrendered to you, Lord. And we know that you want to do this in us, but, Lord, oftentimes we are the challenge and the problem. And, and so as we see you in a greater way, Lord, uh, Lord, it gives us a, a motivation and a desire to want to be changed and transformed. And so I pray you do that in our hearts today. And we thank you for your, uh, your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your work in Peru. And we pray for Pastor Ray that you'd bless him, Pastor Bill, Pastor Ted, Lord, those guys, and Brian. Lord, just bless their ministry there. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
I mentioned that it's a kind of a controversy oftentimes in today's, in the church at large, in America at least, about this idea of, you know, the church replacing Israel, right? As in terms of all the promises that God had planned for Israel, that instead of interpreting them as it says in the scriptures, um, they instead spiritualize it to, to replace Israel with the church. And so, uh, as we'll look at this example here, um, and the idea of, you know, the dry bones coming alive, uh, the, the spiritual interpretation of, of that would be, you know, the church being birthed and, you know, the, the resurrection of the dead. But that's not what this is saying at all. This isn't speaking, although we know that God resurrects the dead and we know there's other scriptures specifically about that, that's not what this is saying. This is speaking of the whole house of Israel being brought back into the land and um, the nation being revived when it was once dead, because it, it, it gives us that interpretation, right? Um, so so um, this idea, and, you, and Ray's taught it before, Ray's talked about replacement theology, this idea that uh, the church is, uh, replaces God's promises to Israel, and all the promises to the nation of Israel instead are spiritual toward the church. And, you know, there's actually a danger in that, because it, what it does, too, is it diminishes our view of uh, the Jewish people into, you know, that God has basically set them aside, though there might be a remnant of believing Jews, then they're in the promises, but specifically for the unbelieving Jews, God has set them aside. But we read, even as we read in Romans, that that's not true, that God has not set them aside. Um, and so, and with the spiritualization of prophecy, you also have a ver another very popular view, which is called amillennialism, right? There's no millennial reign of Christ. But it's rather it's spiritualized where Christ is reigning on the throne for a thousand years, whatever that period is. And instead of being a literal thousand years, it's instead a period of time where God's, uh, you know, uh, church and Christ reigning on the throne eventually ascends to be ruling and reigning over the earth. And, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what they mean, but that's a popular view, especially in the reform circles and, um, you know, uh, looking more in covenant theology, that's popular today. But um, part of that is because of the Reformation, as I mentioned, that as you, re you can read a lot of these like um, commentaries that give this sort of view are readily available. You know, it's free. You can go online, you can download these commentaries from, and you can read about what they say. And so, but over time, um, you have theologians, especially in the 1800s, that started to realize that this was a literal, uh, that we need to interpret this literally. And actually, uh, Isaac Newton, even before the, the 1800s, he's just one of the kind of the benchmarks of classic physics. He said this, listen to this. About the times of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies and insist upon their literal interpretation in the much, of cl much clamor and opposition. I don't know how he got this insight, but he did interpret the scriptures uh, in such a way where Israel was literal, right? It was an, a literal nation, a literal coming back. And he wrote commentaries. He actually spent a lot of time on it. I mean, uh, aside from his great accomplishments in physics, he was actually a very strong believer and had a strong insight into the scriptures. But as you went through the 1800s, you had men um, like C.I. Schofield. Many of you guys may have heard of a Schofield Bible, right? He's, one, he's actually one of the critical guys who started to look at this in a different light. Uh, Darby is another one. Spurgeon himself thought there would be a, uh, uh, and who has more of the reform background, he even thought that it was uh, a literal uh, restoration of the nation of Israel. But there was another interesting guy named uh, J.C. Ryle, and he was a friend of Spurgeon. And he just, you know, he was actually an Anglican pastor with a real reform background. 
but he had a lot of insight into, and, and just a, a Reformed background typically is the teachings of Martin Luther, right, which was a lot of it was founded in um, Augustine theology, and then also John Calvin, right? Those two guys were probably the, the center of Reformed theology when you hear that term. And so, and then there were others too that built upon that. But, but oftentimes you'll hear the term Calvinism, right? Uh, so when I mention Reformed theology, that's what I'm referring to, uh, just so I'm clear here. But, you know, that's not really the focus of this morning's message to talk about that. Uh, but, but those, typically their viewpoint of, um, you know, prophecy and so forth is a spiritualization of it. And when I say spiritualization, I mean taking terms and either using simile or metaphor to, to apply it to uh, some spiritual meaning like the work of Christ in the resurrection here in this chapter of Ezekiel, right? But what we're saying, what I'm saying, and what these authors that I mentioned, like Schofield, what we're saying is that it's not, that these actually have a literal fulfillment. And we interpret then Revelation in the light of that. And it's important because all of the Bible needs to fit together. It needs to work together to give us a full picture, a systematic, everything going together in a, in a systematic way. Um, you know, I work at, that's my job, I'm a systems engineer. I design big software systems that work together. And if you don't see it from the whole picture, right, with these different disparate systems working together in unison, what you get is uh, it doesn't work right. It, it <laughs> so, so, so like, for example, at Kodak, we worked on uh, a system where you could place a so an order on your phone for pictures on your mobile application, and it would go up into the cloud. You guys probably heard the term cloud. And it would come down into a store like Target or Walmart or CVS, and then you could go and claim your order there with the prints. Either they would be printed out automatically, and they're there ready to, when you get there, or they would print it out immediately when you get there, either or. And that system was pretty complicated, you know, to be able to identify which store, you know, have a store locator, have uh, you know all the right products catalog there so that when you order it that product actually exists at the store and if one thing didn't fit together you know you'd you'd end up with an order that got to the store and there was no way to print it you know um, you want a photo book right but they don't print photo books so that's an example of a system that works together in the same way scriptures need to tie together it needs to work together so that all of the parts of scripture fit into one whole, a, a holistic view. And I believe that in literally interpreting the scriptures in that way, that's the only way you can get a full systematic view of what the Bible teaches. And what happens when you start to spiritualize things is you, don't, you tend not to teach them in preference for uh, where it's directly mentioned. Like, for example, you know, if I'm going to talk about the resurrection, you know, I'm, I'm most likely not going to go here. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? Um, or, and, and think of that all over. There's so much Bible prophecy, and if it's all spiritualized, then you tend to not go to that thing. You tend to go towards the, uh, just the, the, uh, you know, the meat of it, right? Because it has more substance. And we're not saying that those things, the, the, you know, the resurrection are true. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is we need the literal so that we can have confidence in a God who makes promises, right? And he made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David that your seed is going to reign forever in Israel. If that, and if that's not literally fulfilled, his promise is just this vague thing. Right? I'm so thankful that God's promises to us are true and real and living. So, um, so this guy, J.C. Ryle, I kind of went on a little sidetrack. I want to read this little quote from him. Cultivate the habit of reading prophecy with a single eye to the literal meaning of its proper names. Cast aside the old traditional idea that Jacob, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, Zion must always mean the Gentile church 
and that predictions about the second advent are to be taken spiritually. And the first advent predictions are literal. So, you know, the interpretation is often the, all the prophecies like Isaiah 53 were literally fulfilled in Christ's coming in his first advent. Then why aren't the ones in his uh, second coming literal? So be just and honest and fair. If you expect the Jews to take the 53rd uh, chapter of Isaiah literally, be sure you take the 54th, the 60th, the 62nd. The Protestant reformers were not perfect. On no point, I venture to say, were they so much in the wrong as in the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. So let's go over, let's look at this a little more detail here and try to understand what Ezekiel's saying in this dry bones um, prophecy. So God gives him a vision here. So this first part is a vision, that, and this is oftentimes in the book of Ezekiel, God gave Ezekiel visions. So it's either visions or object lessons, right? The object lesson was like, you know, go lay on your side every day for like, I forget the number of days, but for hundreds of days, lay on your side in front of the nation of Israel, and then lay on your other side. And he had these kind of these weird object lessons that he had to perform. Um, <clears throat> you know, but then at the same time, he also had these visions. Like chapter 1, he saw these incredible beasts, you know, that these uh, creatures, and he described them as having an eagle's head, a man's head, a, an ox's head, and a lion's head. And they had these wings, and the wings, as they went, they all went together. And then there were all these eyes. And, and he, you know, had a difficult time probably describing these things because they were so incredible. But it was a vision. So we had these object lessons and these visions. In this chapter, we see in the first part a vision, in the second part an object lesson with the stick that becomes one. And so... As he's in the spirit, he's taken to this valley, and he was sees all of these dry bones. And he says, you know, or the God says to him, can these dry bones live? And, and speak to these dry bones. And, and, and Ezekiel's response is, you know, Lord, you know, I don't know in myself what you're going to do here, but you know whether they can live. And sure enough, uh, God speaks through him. And Ezekiel prophesies over these bones, and there's a slow progression, which is interesting. I think it's worth taking note of that, you know, first, sort of like the muscles form on the bones, right? And then the skin goes on the bones, and then the breath is breathed into the bones, and then, and then they, they come alive, right? Um, and that, I think that's important as we look at the final thing, is that they're all going to be brought back, right? Uh, the, the nation will be brought back to Israel. That is not an immediate thing, boom, there. It's sort of the slow progression of time and, and that it's not all of a sudden all done. It's, you know, the slow breathing of, or slow progression of getting to the point of life and then life is breathed into it. Um, and so as he prophesies, the bones come alive and, and they live. And, and like I said, there is the sense of the power of God to resurrect, right? And if God shows Ezekiel that he can resurrect the dead, which is, like, crazy, right? I mean, I don't know. I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. But the first thing I think of is zombies. <laughs> you know, it's like a crazy thing that, you know, couldn't happen. But with the Lord, you know, all things are possible, right? And he, and we believe just like it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe by faith that the Lord resurrected Lazarus. Or when he said, Talitha Kumai, to that young girl, and she rose from the dead, right? Or when Elijah prayed for the man, uh, the young man, and he lived. Uh, so those instances where God rose the dead, we believe it by faith. We didn't see it, but we believe by faith. And so we know God is capable of raising the dead, but more importantly, in this chapter, what he's saying is, if I'm able to raise the dead, would it be too hard for me to bring the nation back of Israel? Which was the, I mean, when you look through the book of Ezekiel, right, one of the things you see is they're, they're desperate, right? Ezekiel's sitting by the river Chebar, and he's with these guys, and they're desperate, right? They're out of the nation. They'd been brought out by Babylon, and they were in exile, and everything that they knew was taken from them. 
and they, they had lost hope. Uh, and God explained to them through the prophet Ezekiel that these things came upon them because of Israel's disobedience, specifically Judah's disobedience, and that the curses of the Old Testament had come upon them, the curses of Deuteronomy. In the late book of Deuteronomy are clearly explained. But he also, and this is, this is really the ministry of all the prophets, what they did. They're just telling the people, this is what's going to happen if you break God's law. The curse is going to come upon you. But if you turn to him, this is what's going to happen, the blessing of God's law. And so Ezekiel, the whole book, explains that. And the middle of the book then goes on to say, I'm going to deal with these nations around you. You know, these nations have been a thorn in your side. They've been a problem to you. I'm going to deal with all those nations. I will judge them. Yes, they may have judged you in bringing judgment upon you, in my, but it's my judgment. I'm using them, but I will also judge them. And then he goes on and he gives them hope with these, these chapters. He's giving them a hope of a future restoration. And so if that's not literal, right, it's apparent to, at least in my perspective, you know, um, to Ezekiel, it doesn't feel like God is as faithful if it's not literal. If it doesn't, you know, he actually mean what he says, right? Um, but one of the things that I wanted to point out here as we look at this, uh, that God did a work of resurrection in this prophecy. And it kind of also shows us that God is able to revive the things that are dead. Now, I don't see that as the, the primary interpretation, obviously. We've been talking about what the primary interpretation, that God wants to, want to bring them back into the land. And in bringing them back into the land, it wasn't just being brought back with the Zerubbabel and um, with Joshua. That, ta that, that comes later in the Old Testament with, like, the prophets Zechariah and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's not what this was speaking of, because it speaks that they will come from all, in the second part of this, that they will come from all over, and they will all over the world, and that Messiah would be set up. And that's not what happened with Zerubbabel coming back, although they did go back in the land, and it was sort of a, a foreshadowing and a hope for them to go back into the land. They were still not independent. They were still under the reign of the uh, the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then they were scattered again after that in A.D. 70. So they never, the times of the Gentiles continued, right, as it talked about there in Romans. It wasn't, God had not brought them back. So, but God's work of revival, back to this idea that God is able to bring revival, I think is important to us as an application, right? God can revive our lives. God can bring life where there was deadness, and that work is one of his word and his spirit, as it talks about here, that Ezekiel was to prophesy, he was to speak to the bones, and then they were to live. And the speaking of prophecy, the speaking forth of the word of God in a relevant way that applies to lives can happen either in our own lives as we read the scriptures. God could speak into our hearts through the scriptures. And, to, and, and show us things that are specific to our situation. And when he does that, he's, sometimes he's trying to work, he's trying to get our attention to revive the work of his spirit in our lives. And then after he speaks to us, he breathes then life into us by his spirit. He, he, like here, the wind, representative of the Holy Spirit, and even in the New Testament, John talked about that, that the Holy Spirit is like a wind. You can't see where it's going or where it comes from, but you see the effects of it. Um, so God wants to work in us to revive the work by his word and by his spirit. And then when he's done that in us, he does the same thing through us in others. That as we speak forth the word of God, and, and sometimes it's, we don't even realize it, right? We're speaking about God, just, just being free in the spirit and speaking about the Lord, what he's doing, because we're walking with him. And he uses it in such a way to the person that we're talking to that it, it just, it's like it awakens them. Something in that just spoke to their heart, and they want that. Or it awakens that desire to follow hard after God that he's done in you. And that's often how revivals break out, that the church gets right with God, and the unbelieving world sees it 
sees the reality of God in their lives and, and the love of God in their lives, they want it and it spreads to them, right? So, um, so revival is spoken of here. Um, but I don't want, again, I don't want that to take away from uh, the full picture here of what we're trying to deal with, with this interpretation of God wanting to bring Israel back into the land. <clears throat> and so he says here, behold, and I think this is important that we look at this. In verse 11, he says, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So the whole house of Israel, that's what they were saying in that time when they were brought out to Babylon and they were taken out of the nation. They, they saw themselves as being cast off as like dead bones. Right? So God was using this analogy to address what they were saying, uh, this analogy of the dry bones living. And then he says, prophesy and say to them, in verse 12, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come forth out of the graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, you might think to yourself, well, aren't you saying this is supposed to be literal? Well, we do interpret. Uh, so you have to interpret it based on what it says, right? So sometimes, like when Jesus gives uh, an analogy to cut off your, uh, what is it, cut off your hand if it offends you, or poke out your eye if it offends you, you have to interpret it in the context of the passage to understand whether it's literal or not. And so he even says here that uh, this is the whole house of Israel there in verse 11. So we know that this is an analogy. This is a metaphor for the whole, for the whole house of Israel. And he gives the interpretation here in verse 13. I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought up you up from your, your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. So the metaphor is that as these dry bones lived, I will also bring you back out of, these, out of all nations to bring you into the land. So when did this happen? Well, like I mentioned, it couldn't have been the time of Zerubbabel coming back into the land. It had to be yet future. Now, in 1948, we know na the nation of Israel came back into the land, right? It was made a sovereign nation again. But we also don't see um, this national revival of all the Jewish people getting saved. Uh, but we also read in Ro Romans that all Israel will be saved, right? So it's, like I said, it's stirring. The bones are stirring. There's life on the bones, um, you know, in the sense of the flesh is on the bones. Uh, people are going back to Israel in mass. The Jewish population in, in Israel is increasing over time. I kind of, if you want to see a graph, I, I made a graph of the uh, immigration to Israel since 1948, and it, there's some spikes in it, but it's just kind of steady. It's just, but overall, the population of Israel of Jewish people in Israel is going up and the population in the rest of the world of Jewish people is going down, uh, partially because of the immigration um, and the repopulation of the nation of Israel. And we still see that, that Israel makes it easy for people who are Jewish to come back there. But we don't see yet what we've read in Revelation, right? Ray taught us about the 144,000 Jewish believers, he called them, you know, and others have called them, you know, Jewish Billy Grahams, right? That they, <clears throat> but um, at the at the very end, as we're going to look at this next part, Messiah is set up, and all Israel will be saved at the very end. It says that they in Zechariah, it says that they will look on him whom they pierced, and at that point, the whole nation will be saved. They'll see him who he is and they'll repent and turn back to him. And he'll be there as king. So let's look at that part. Let's look at this, uh, this second part because it relates directly to the first part here. So uh, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 15, 
take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim. And join them to one stick for yourself. And then the children, in verse 18, of the people will speak to you. Will you not show us what these things mean? So they wouldn't get it at first. And they would need the interpretation of it. So he gives them interpretation. Love that. It makes it easy on us so we don't have to kind of guess at the meaning. It tells us what it is. Um, basically, it's saying that all the nation of Israel will be reformed into one. Right? So you, you'll have people from every tribe in, uh, of Israel. So it speaks of Joseph and Judah here. And those were representative in the Old Testament of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom, but there were actually other tribes in, uh, encompassed in that. So Benjamin and there were uh, those from Simeon uh, and also Levi were, in the tri were included in the tribe of Judah. And then in the north, was the biggest tribe was Ephraim, and the biggest tribe in the south was Judah. But the, bi the biggest tribe in the north was Ephraim, so he just referred to him as either Ephraim, who was the son of Joseph, or Joseph. Either one of those could be used to describe the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, as you know... <clears throat> split in the times of Rehoboam. So with Rehoboam, uh, he didn't heed the counsel of the wise older men and the kingdom. As a result, Jeroboam broke off, took half the nation with him. Rehoboam took the south and Judah. Um, Jeroboam took the north and Joseph slash Ephraim slash all the northern tribes. And over time, the northern tribes slowly uh, drifted away from the Lord God sent them prophets, just like he sent the southern kingdom. He's, uh, <clears throat> Elijah, Elisha were both sent to the northern kingdoms, among others. And eventually the northern kingdom was taken away captive by Assyria, right? And they became actually like the nations around them in their idolatry. And they, end, they intermarried with the nations around them. And over time, you had the, the half-breeds that the Jews considered the Samaritans, right? And that was the northern kingdom, what it became. But throughout that period, this was many years that this happened. Throughout that, there were actually people who enjoined them from all the tribes that went down to the south. And so in the south, there was the whole um, nation was represented. But it's also interesting that even the half-breeds, Jesus still considered his people because he went to them. Jesus came to go to the, the, the house of Israel, it says. that He said that himself. And what did he do? I, need, I must needs go to Samaria, through Samaria. And he went and he ministered to the woman there at the well. She went back, told everyone, and everyone believed, right, in Samaria. Um, and so Jesus, although they had become, you know, they had gone afar off from the covenant in many ways, Jesus still saw them as his people, which is really interesting, because even if they were half-breeds, he still saw them as his people. Um, and I just think that's very interesting. It shows God's faithfulness to the descendants of Abraham. Despite their choices and their bad choices, God was faithful to them. And, you know, all the other Israelites saw the Samaritans as not Jews, but Jesus saw them as his people. And so this nation would be brought together as one nation. And this is another reason why uh, this, the interpretation of this passage has to be a future time because the nation hasn't been brought back as, as one until now, right? Until we see now in 1948, it's one nation, it's sovereign. And although we don't know, like if you went to uh, Israel, people may tell you what tribe they're from, uh, but they don't really know. They've lost sort of the, uh, the hierarchy uh, or the uh, genealogy, I'm sorry, um, over time of what nations they came from or what tribes they came from. But God knows, right? And he even picks them with the 144,000 like we mentioned and the ones that he would use, 12,000 from each tribe and it would seem that they would be young people because they were virgins. Uh, but it says down here, as we read through this, it really emphasizes the fact that they would come from every nation. There in verse 21, 
that I will take the children of Israel from among all the nations. And when they were brought back from Babylon, we know this doesn't apply because they were only brought back from Babylon. Right? There were still Jews all throughout the world. But now we see, and you can look at what countries they come from right, in Israel. They're coming from Brazil, emigrating from Brazil. They're emigrating from a lot from Russia, a lot from Ethiopia, a lot from the United States, uh, a lot from France in the last few years because of the, the persecution and the anti-Semitism that's there in France. And so at any time, you know, God can allow Satan to increase the anti-Semitism, which then inspires the Jewish people to go to a place where they'll be accepted and they won't be persecuted. And there's this strange persecution of the Jew that has happened for thousands of years. I say strange in that it seems worse than other groups. doesn't mean other groups haven't been persecuted because of race or anything like that, but there is, seems to be a more intense persecution for the Jews, and we see the Holocaust was the greatest example of that, and the, the greatest in the sense of the worst, or the most no, uh, notable. But the, uh, only with more recently have, are they being brought back from every nation. And then it says that David my servant shall be king over them, and shall have one shepherd. And, you know, chapter 36 talks about this restoration. And that's the key word here that I wanted to talk about, this rest, restore, that God is a restorer. And, you know, for, for the Jew who was in exile and the Jew who had lost their sovereign state and had a king over them, it was very difficult. Um, and, you know, after this time, there was no one that, that reigned over the nation. And the Jews themselves... This, ver this verse about David reigning again is their key verse about the Messiah. Now, they missed the fact about, like Isaiah 53, that Messiah had to come first to suffer. And the, the New Testament writers are so clear to point out that Christ must needs come and suffer first before returning and reigning. And because they had the same misconception, right? The, the apostles all thought Jesus would, was, he was the Messiah, but that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And when he didn't do it, it was confusing to them. And not until after, till they saw the resurrection and they were filled with this Holy Spirit and Jesus revealed to them the meaning of the Old Testament in a clear way, did it, the full picture come to play. And so the unbelieving Jews still have this interpretation of this key part that Messiah is going to come, yet future, and set up his reign in an actual, literal place in Israel. Now, some people interpret this to be that in the millennial reign, David will actually be the one reigning because it says David there. Um, I don't know if it matters per se, but I do. Th I think it's the Messiah because Jesus said, or, or God said to David that someone from your seed would reign forever. And it talks about here that he would be a prince forever in this particular chapter. So I do think that even though it says David here, it's referring to the greater David in Jesus. Just like in, you know, John the Baptist was referred to as, you know, Elijah, right? In the same way, um, this David here is referred to as the Messiah and the Prince forever. <clears throat> so, but God has a restorative work in our lives. God wants to restore, and I mentioned that, in verse chapter 36, it actually talks about the land being restored. Here it talks about the king being restored into his rightful place and the nation being restored as one. In the land being restored, God talked about how it would be desolate and then it would be, and life would be, uh, be there. And if you go back 100 years and you went to Israel, you'd be like, this is the worst place. It's all malaria infested. You know, it's a big desert. It's a swamp in some places and a desert in others. You know, where do I live, right? Yet people went there, Zionism started back in the late 1800s, and people made the step to go there because they wanted to see one nation, to go a place of refuge for them. And then all of a sudden these this crazy, uh, you know, events took place throughout, his, throughout the, you know, the 1900s uh, where the nation suddenly was back and rebirthed after World War II and, you know, the 1948, 
And then even God protected the nation through the, the wars in 1967 and then 1973. There was the Yom Kippur War. I have a friend that was in that war. And he, he was a tank commander, and he saw the stuff happen. And he, he was like, you know, it, it happened so suddenly that basically if you were an Israelite man, you had to fight. So you had engineers, you had, um, uh, you know, lawyers, you had bankers, you had, you know, tour, uh, tour guides, anyone. You were fighting alongside each other. So it would be like all the men here just, we got to go to war, you know. It's kind of unthinkable to me. I've never shot a, well, I shot a gun once at, with Ben and Josiah. <laughs> that was the only gun I ever shot. So I'm not really trained in war except for what they trained me in. <laughs> They're trained in war. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's what it's like. And so my friend, he was in this, this, and, you know, they held back the whole Egyptian army with, with the tanks, and, and they held them back, the, the Syrian army, up in the Golan Heights, which you can read about these miraculous conflicts where like one tank held back a whole army of tanks right um, so God was preserving the nation through that and it was in the because it was in the process God was restoring the nation um, and and he was and if you go there now some of you guys just went there you see how it's become this agricultural you know breadbasket for Europe for many nations it's 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 very lush in a lot of the areas. Although there is a water shortage, they've managed to figure out how to irrigate in, in new ways and do hydroponics and those sort of things to bring a lot of vegetation, a lot of um, produce to small areas of land, right? They're very good at that. And it's one of their major economies. Um, so God has begun restoring the land even today. We can see that as the bones are stirring, right? Um, and so God can restore, so I mentioned that God can revive in our lives. God can re also restore in our lives. So as our lives are revived and we begin to walk with the Lord, there's going to be testings and difficulties, but he can restore. And, you know, our lives can become a testimony of the work of God to restore what he has promised in us to us and to restore things that we see are broken. You know, he said that, he said to the Jews of old that, you know, there was a big plague of locusts. And, and uh, the book of Joel talks about that, this plague of locusts that had destroyed almost like the whole nation. And uh, it was devastating. It was like the worst plague Israel had ever seen. And he said, I will restore what the locust has eaten. And he mentions all these different types of locusts that had come. And, and, and it was almost like they came in waves, like these different kinds of locusts. And it just it was a barren wasteland. And he says, I can restore that. It's like God can restore the things that have been devastated in our lives because of our own choices, because of our failures, because that's what it was for the nation. Remember, they had failed the covenant. And we don't know how God is going to do it, and he's going to test us. But we can rest assured, as he's been faithful to the nation, as we already see him being faithful to restore Israel today, as he's... Uh, been faithful to these prophecies in the Old Testament, he will be faithful in our lives to restore what has been destroyed. Amen. And so we get to chapter 38, and we're not going to do a so, super detailed study of chapter 38 because uh, we got a second service here <laughs> um, to go into all the names and everything. So I'm just going to give you a brief summary and try to show how God is our refuge. So he's, he's our reviver he's our restorer and now he's our, our refuge as well so uh and that this is also a yet future event that there's nothing in history where this has happened and some of you guys are familiar with this chapter and what some of these things mean some of you guys have studied it in depth um and that's great and that's important that we do that <clears throat> so now the word of the lord came to me saying son of man set your face against gog the land of magog the prince of rosh meshach and tubal and prophesy against him just a couple of things to note on that um the the words actually refer to the land of the ancient scythians you know those uh magog was one of the sons of uh japheth i think one of those guys 
and um, it talks about these Scythians who, you know, we know that the ancient Scythians are in the, the Caucasus, right? Um, and so we know for sure that there's a group of people that come from that Caucasus area. And I remember we had Dave Comp here, who's a missionary, who has been a missionary there. I don't know if he's there right now, but we've had him speak here. And he, I remember him speaking here once, and he talked about how these people were fiery, right? A lot of them are Muslims, right? And they're very fiery, and they're, uh, they're, they don't like to be offended, and so they just go to war, you know? So it's a very, it's an unstable region, and it's been unstable for a long time. And it's been, you know, if you go back 30 years or 40 years, it was actually under uh, Russian, the Russian, or the Soviet Union. Now, Russia still has a presence in the northern Caucasus. And, you know, that you can see them. They were active in recent years in Georgia as well. Um, but Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, uh, those could very well refer to Moscow and Tobolsk, which are Russian cities. And Rosh, of course, could be an, a word that means Russian. And when you read it, you, when you have a Russian person, read in a translation of this. So someone who took the original language and translated it into Russian, it actually reads Moscow and Tobolsk, and it talks about the Russians, which is interesting. Um, now, we can't say for certain, because some of that stuff is lost, but it's, there's definitely this presence from the north, right, that would end up coming down with all these other nations. Uh, we know that uh, Persia, right, Iran, modern-day Iran, Ethiopia, which also includes Sudan, strong Muslim influence there, in Sudan, and especially in northern Sudan and the parts that border on Ethiopia, and there's a lot of Muslims in Ethiopia. Um, and then Libya, strong Muslim presence there, uh, Gomer and Togarma, um, and those Turkey and then Eastern Europe, those things referred to, they would all come down that they would prepare themselves and be ready. And they would, for some reason, they see an opportunity to take a spoil. So some people have interpreted this as, you know, the natural resources of Israel. Whatever it is, they come to take a spoil from Israel. So they're stirred up out of uh, acquiring. And that I, I think we oftentimes, you know, people don't always share all their true motives in, in, in what they do, right? Nations are kind of similar to that. There's oftentimes a selfish motive in what nations do, right? You know, even the United States' presence in the Middle East, well, why were we there, really? Everyone knows it was oil-related, right? So it's to protect our economic interest in oil. And so there's some sort of economic interest here that motivates them to come down. But God calls it a hook, that he's actually putting a hook in their jaw to bring them down on purpose because he wants to destroy them and judge them. And the interesting thing is these aren't the nations directly surrounding Israel, but they're the nations that are sort of the next circle around it, right? So you have nations directly are Lebanon, Syria, the Palestinian, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Um, let's see. I thought Egypt was mentioned here, but that's okay. But either way, it's the greater circle of, you know, Iran and, and these other Muslim nations and Sudan, because Sudan was kind of bundled into the Ethiopia thing there. But he says, after many days you will be visited in the latter years. And if you look at history, you don't see this event taking place. Some people try to try to pin it on, um, you know, the, the time of the Maccabeans and Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. That was a time in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament when this ruler, this, is, this Syrian ruler came against Israel and he did, he actually stopped a sacrifice and sacrificed the pig on the altar as a way of blaspheming. But it doesn't fit, right? When you read in Daniel, there's actually a real clear picture of that happening. And we, we recognize that there's a chapter in Daniel that is specifically speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes and the events that would happen. But this doesn't fit. And so, and then as you look through history, there's nothing that really fits this, this occurrence. 
So therefore, we conclude that it's yet future, especially since it mentions here that it's in the latter days. And that there would, and it happens after they had been gathered, as it mentioned in chapter 37 and 36, that they were, in verse 8 here, it says that they had already been gathered to the mountains of Israel that had been desolate, right? So we already know that the stuff in 36 and 37 had to have happened, although this may not be exactly chronological, like immediately proceeding. It is conditional in that these things had to have happened. And they will come down like a storm. And then he says down in verse 14, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when your people Israel dwell safely, you will not know it, or will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, and, you, and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. And it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am hollowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And thus says the Lord, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former day, days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at that same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. And it actually says that he'll rain down fire and brimstone upon uh, Gog and Magog and their allies in this, in this judgment. And one of the other things is we know that this isn't, because um, there's an actual millennial, post-millennial reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation. We'll get there as Ray goes through it. But it's not the same thing, because after the Gog and Magog mentioned in Revelation, it immediately goes into the white throne judgment. It goes into the time when God would judge. There's no time between that. It's immediate. So God judges Satan, throws him in the lake of fire, and then the, the dead are uh, judged. <clears throat> but here we see, and as we read forward, we're not going to actually go into it, that they would end up, end up cleansing the land for seven years. So it doesn't make sense. Why would they need to cleanse the land if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? God's going to cleanse it. <laughs> so they actually have to bury these bones for some reason, possibly nuclear, we don't know exactly why, but there's specific people that are employed to bury the bones of the dead that had been killed in this, uh, uh, in God's operation, Operation Gog and Magog by God. <laughs> so, um, but we see in this God's faithfulness to protect his people, to be a refuge. And I want to read you uh, some verses in Psalm. I was reading through this and I was like, man, this sounds like what God's going to do. In Psalm 46, you can turn there, but you don't have to. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though, it water, though its waters roar and be troubled. And it says, verse 6, The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot and fire. And that's what he's going to do with the Gog and Magog invasion. He's going to bring fire and um, brimstone down, like he did with Joshua in some of his battles. He actually brought fire and brimstone to, to, to win the battles that he fought. And then he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, thankfully, we don't go through a lot of these national battles, but we can know that in the midst of great problems and troubles that God will be with us. And, he, and you, know, you know, at any time, you know, if you think about people that have been affected by disasters like floods, like you think of Katrina and hurricanes and so forth, it was a very isolated thing, but it was, you got you to gotta relate to them in that. It really was like the end of their lives as they know it, their normal lives as they know it. They lost every, many people lost everything. And God is a present help to those people. God is a present, and so we can be assured if there's any national catastrophe, if there's any 9-11, if there's any Katrina, if there's anything like World War II even, one of the, wor the worst war the world has ever known, 
God is our refuge. It doesn't mean that he's going to give America victory, per se, but he's going to be with his people. And he's going to be faithful to us, and those that trust him. And, he, and it doesn't mean it's not going to be, it's going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But he will be faithful to bring you through it or to bring you to heaven if necessary, right? And he is a faithful God uh, to bring us through those trials. And we can find him as a refuge, even as Israel found God a refuge and will find them a refuge when these nations come against them. So let's go back and wrap this all up with Romans 12. Because I think it's really important why God does this. Why God wants to fulfill his literal prophecies to the nation of Israel. And that if we don't see it in this light properly, we lose confidence in a, a faithful God who wants to work in our lives in the same way that he wants to be faithful to us. Then we can take his word literally. We can take his promises to the fathers literally. And I think it's all summed up in this verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So for the amillennialist or for this person who has replacement theology in their mind and covenant theology, the, God is done with the Jew in a national sense. But this verse speaks of the Jews who are still enemies for the gospel. These are the people that persecuted Paul wherever he went, right? That didn't believe in Christ. They actually want to kill Paul. They want to kill Christ. And others, too, uh, they persecuted. The other apostles as well, they persecuted. They threw Peter in jail. They killed James with the sword. Um, actually, Herod did, but I'm sure he was incited uh, by these Jews because it, it gained him favor. <coughs> um, but they did throw Peter and John in jail, um, and God allowed them to get out. And Peter ended up in jail again, a second time, and God allowed him to get out because the Jews who didn't believe were persecuting them. And so they were enemies. And Paul was one of them. And he persecuted the church. And then God changed them. And so all the enemies, and even today, the Jews who are in Israel for the majority, there's a very small percentage that believe on Christ. Very tiny amount. But they are... And from God's eyes, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. And for us to just say God's done with the nation Israel uh, in a collective sense, it, it diminishes in us um, a desire to reach out to the Jew, to provoke them to jealousy, as Paul said. It diminishes that. So, so theology will often have an impact on how we live, right? And if you look at how the church, is, the church often has actually persecuted the Jews, and I believe a lot of it is rooted in a bad theology around this whole idea that, God, that the church has replaced Israel. And, but what, what happens when you have a proper view that God is not done with Israel, there's a love and a compassion for the Jews that comes out and allows us to love them even when they reject us. <clears throat> and, uh, but ultimately... God is being faithful to his promises to men like Abraham. He promised to Abraham that your seed, you know, that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And that he promised that land to Abraham forever. He promised the throne that someone would reign in Israel, literally, to David forever. And we know that the, the king who will reign is Jesus. Um, but God wants to be faithful. That's the key of all this. And that's why it's so important that we see this in the right light, because he wanted to be faithful to men like Abraham. You know, if I was Abraham, and, you know, I heard about all this theology stuff, and, you know, and I... He would just say, no, that's, you know, God's got a plan for my kids. I mean, he believed that, <laughs> basically, that's what it is, right? God's got a plan for my kids. He told me. And that maybe not literally just Isaac, because that's his kid, the kid of promise, right? But all of his descendants was that promise for. 
And so when, if we told Abraham all this stuff in these theological debates, he'd just say, God's faithful to my kids. And I think that's for us too, you know. God will be faithful to us. It says that he, even our kids, he sanctified um, the believing children, or the believing person's children. In, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about that. That God has a plan for our, he wants to bring our kids and our grandkids into a life uh, like he's done for us. And he will, not, he will not stop until they turn. Now, there's still a choice element there. that God, you know, They have to make this choice, but God's not going to stop working until they're brought. And I think that it just shows God's faithfulness. I mean, he, he wants to restore or revive. He wants to restore, and he's also our refuge, and he's faithful to do it. And that prophecy shows us that, and we can be confident in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for how you speak to us and, and that you're faithful to us, Lord. And I pray that, um, Lord, as uh, we've looked at these chapters and kind of a summary, quick view, Lord, uh, may we continue to understand them deeper and search the scriptures as the Bereans did, Lord, to find out these things. We hear things. There's so much teaching out there. There's so much uh, opinions, Lord, and we need to be able to filter things through correct interpretation of scriptures, correct hermeneutics as the theological term is, Lord. And, and Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord, in that. And give us wisdom, Lord. We, we read so many things, and there's a lot of uh, stuff out there that uh, may not be horrible, but it's, not, it's got some errors, Lord, and we need your wisdom and, and, and guidance. And we pray that um, as we go, that we would see your faithfulness and reviving us, Lord, and restoring us, and you would be our refuge in any storms that would come. In Jesus' name, amen.